This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Larry Kramer, the Dean of Stanford Law School. Uh, I hope you're enjoying Stanford this, this weekend. I'm happy for the rain for this little block of time, although I hope it clears up immediately after. Um, and it's a pleasure to see though, so many of you uh, uh, here back on campus for this series of programs and events. Um, thank you particularly for joining us today for our panel entitled, The Power to Start, Conduct, and End Wars, the Ongoing Constitutional Debate Over War Powers. And I will say when we first uh, thought of whether to do a panel on this topic, which was almost a year ago at this point, I, I worried at that time that, you know, it was hot then, but by the time we got around to this next October, <laughs> So I am disappointed to tell you that it is obviously still an important issue. Um, one thing to note, uh, we had originally planned uh, on the panel to include Noah Feldman, um, a former colleague of mine from NYU who's now at Harvard Law School, but uh, his plane got hung up um, and he was not able to make it in time. But we went to our bench and I brought in a ringer, uh, Jack Rakoff uh, from the history department and so he will be joining us for the panel instead. Um, it's my pleasure though uh, to introduce Warren Christopher. Um, among other things, I, sh I should mention, uh, uh, Warren Christopher is uh, co-chairman of the National War Powers Commission, which is a private bipartisan panel seeking consensus on the issue that is our topic that's been unresolved for the entire history of this country. Uh, and Stanford Law School is one of five institutions of the National War Powers Commission uh, as a co-sponsor. Um, and uh, so um, part of our, our reason for wanting to do this also was uh, the thought that generating debate on this issue could be of enormous help just in what is an ongoing public debate um, with, uh, with people who are essentially involved in it and can hopefully uh, help to improve the situation. Um, Warren Christopher actually is an individual who essentially does not require an introduction, I think, um, but I will attempt to do so. Um, to his friends, Chris uh, is currently a senior partner at O'Melveny and Myers in Los Angeles, where he has practiced law uh, effectively on and off, let us say, for 45 years. Uh, 45 years at one of the country's most prestigious law firms would be considered a highly successful career for most. Um, but in Chris's case, that's only a small piece of what has been an incredibly distinguished career. And he has, among other things, and while being in and out of the firm, served as Deputy Attorney General, Deputy Secretary of State, and of course the 63rd Secretary of State uh, during President Clinton's term. Um, he's also authored four books in the stream of history, Shaping Foreign Policy for a New Era, Chances of a Lifetime, Diplomacy, the Neglected Imperative, and Random Harvest. Uh, while doing all that, he has also found time to serve as president of the Board of Trustees here at Stanford University. And in 1981, President Carter awarded Warren Christopher the Medal of Freedom, which is the nation's highest civilian award for his role in negotiating the release of 52 American hostages held in Iran. Warren Christopher received a BS, magna cum laude, from the University of Southern California in 1945 before attending Stanford Law School. While here at the law school, he was a member of the Order of the Coif and served as the first president on the first issue of the Stanford Law Review. Most important, Chris has been to the law school and to me personally and to many other deans before me, a friend and advisor, and he is the very model 
of a person who combines intelligence, integrity, generosity, and modesty. All those who get the fortunate opportunity to befriend Chris and spend time with him are better off for it, as you will see this afternoon. So with that, let me introduce Warren Christopher. Good afternoon. I'm just delighted to be here and glad to see so many friends and colleagues in the audience. Let me do, as they say in my hometown, set the scene for just a minute. For more than two centuries, a debate has raged in our country over whether President or the Congress has the power to start and conduct wars. Scholars and practical politicians have joined this debate over the years, which, of course, has such enormous practical consequences. Right now, as you know, Congress is seeking to end our engagement in Iraq, and the President is determined to continue it. The United States Constitution, that wonderfully prophetic document, is absolutely clear on this subject both ways. <laughs> it provides compelling arguments uh, for the Congress having the power, on the one hand, and equally compelling arguments for the President. Professor Corbin, a great historian, was so accurate when he said the Constitution, at least on issue, this issue, is an invitation to struggle. <laughs> Proponents of the congressional supremacy point to, of course, Section 1, Section 8 of Article 1 of the Constitution, which provides that the President shall have the power to declare war and to grant letters of mark and reprisal. These proponents say that until the Congress has authorized war, then but only then does the president's role as commander-in-chief come into play. The proponents of the presidential power also argue that the president can act without constitutional and congressional authorization only in limited circumstances where he doesn't have time to secure congressional authorization, such as when we've been invaded or when American individuals are at risk abroad. On the other hand, the proponents of the uh, authority of the president uh, point to the clause of the Constitution about the president's power as commander-in-chief. They say that the framers intended to put uh, the power in the hands of the person who had the most information and the best exability best ability to execute. Uh, these proponents belittle congressional power, saying that all Congress has to the power is to declare war, to recognize the existence of a state of war, and not to do more than that. They say that uh, if, if Congress has power problems with the power of the president in this field, uh, they can cut back, that is, the power of purse on the funds, or they can, in the last cause, impeach. History does really make it clear that in the early days, the Constitutional Fathers were anxious to avoid the power of the king in the British period, uh, which was almost absolute. We'll hear more about this today from our, our surprise guest here today, Jack Rakoff. Uh, reflecting this history, uh, as we'll be hearing further from our panelists, the presidents in the 19th century do seem to have leaned somewhat more toward uh, the Congress and the President. Uh, the 20th century certainly 
brought a big change in the attitudes. In the 20th century, presidents have sought a declaration of war only in two instances, uh, in World War I and World War II. Uh, they've asserted their commander-in-chief power dozens of times without going to the Congress. And as you probably know, in both the Iraq wars in 91 and now, Congress authorized the military to take the action but did not actually declare war. The Vietnam War was really a watershed. Both Presidents Kennedy and uh, Johnson sent troops into Vietnam between 19... 90, 1960 and 1964 without any congressional authorization. In 1964, Johnson obtained from the Congress with very slim evidence that controversial Tonkin Bay Resolution, which authorized the use of force. This led to the War Powers Resolution, which was passed in 1973. There's an aspect of this that really is a very important part of Stanford history. Uh, John Hart Ely, who many of you probably knew or studied under, has written the definitive book on this subject in the 1990s. And as I was doing my research for work on the commission, uh, it seemed to me clear that John Hart Ely is the reigning expert on this subject. His book reads today, uh, 15 years later, like it might have been written only yesterday. Uh, this issue, which we'll hear about from our panelists, is made really more urgent today by the changing character of war the war on terror with its focus on non-state actors, such as the Al-Qaeda, uh, which is regarded by many as kind of a permanent state of war uh, with no point of definite conclusion. And I think that has changed the dialogue to some extent. Over the years, uh, the federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have been very reluctant, very hesitant about getting into this fray. For example, as you probably many of you remember, during the Vietnam War, the Supreme Court consistently held that the war powers issue was a, quote, political question that were beyond the courts and the courts would not interfere. In the last few years, we've seen a minor change in this. We may be undergoing a major constitutional, or at least Supreme Court, change on this subject in the Guantanamo cases, where the Supreme Court has taken a more active role at least insofar as judging whether or not the president has gone too far to infringe on individual liberties. Well, now to address these questions, which I only in the most sketchy way have laid the background for, we have a very distinguished panel uh, of speakers. I'll introduce them as they present their remarks. The plan for them, each of them, is for them to talk for seven to 10 minutes, and then we'll have an informal discussion in which both you and I will join. Speaking first is Abraham Sofir, a former federal judge who was legal advisor at the State Department when George Shultz, who means so much to this community here at Stanford, was Secretary of State. And Abe is now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Secretary Shultz has given us just a wonderful word picture of Judge Sofir, and I, I hope he won't mind my quoting Secretary Shultz, who described him as a formidable fellow whose authoritative voice and manner mirrored a brilliant mind and resolve that it would not retreat. George also added that he is a merry, noisy, perpetual motion machine. <laughs> I, I'm delighted to introduce Judge Abraham Sophia to this audience. Abe?
Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here and to participate in this event uh, under the chairmanship of Secretary Christopher, who is uh, one of this law school's most distinguished graduates. And uh, I also might say that um, uh, you have some bench here at Stanford when you can pull out a Pulitzer Prize winning historian to take the place of, of a fellow that did, didn't make the plane. <laughs> Now, uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, I, 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 I see there's a lot of you here, but I, I'm, I'm fully aware that um, this whole issue of the power over war uh, is gripping and, and fundamental, and we all care a lot about what happens to our nation and our soldiers. Uh, but um, this is a law school, and um, I'm sure you have uh, had your fill uh, over the years of uh, hearing various quotations uh, back and forth about uh, who has the power over war. And uh, 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 Secretary Christopher, um, I think, very uh, ably uh, summed up uh, the fact that um, uh, there's a record of quotes and, and provisions that are trooped out um, each year uh, in every law school across the country, it seems, in, in which um, uh, people are told, uh, yes, the president has the power because of this, 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 and the Congress has the power because of this, that, and that. And it gets to be, you know, after about 30 years of this, uh, you, you, uh, and for you especially, you must feel a little bit like uh, Monty Python's coal miner, you know, who sits there and he says, you know, when I became a coal miner, I took a real interest in coal. <laughs> but... After a while, digging and digging, my interest in coal started to wane. <laughs> and it was just waning and waning away. And uh, all of you, all of you have had more than your fill of those quotes. And I don't think anyone on this panel is going to regale you with that kind of a presentation. Uh, the subject is a minefield of canards that keep getting recycled. Um, nothing seems to get settled. The only new developments are escalations by advocates of executive, legislative, or judicial power based on the same old quotes, but with new strategic necessities or threats to liberty advanced as justification, as though emergencies are something never before experienced in our history. The best that can be said for these claims is that they are novel. This is because no respectable leader or scholar would have previously advanced them. <laughs> My view of the war powers is based on the proposition that no single branch has authority to control entirely any aspect of war. No absolute rule applies. This is because under our Constitution, each branch of government has powers that apply to all areas of government activity, including war. So each is able to use its powers regardless of the existence of the powers exercised by the others, sometimes creating conflict often generating heat. Uh, 
even where one branch has theoretically absolute power over a particular matter, its exercise of that power is often compromised by the powers and pressures created by the other branches and by the realities of public events. Perhaps even more significantly, our system generally requires that even a potentially controlling power must actually be exercised in order to be effective. Otherwise, the unchecked exercise of lesser but overlapping powers by other branches will often control the outcome. This system is easy to understand, but difficult to accept. We all crave definitive answers with operationally consistent outcomes to questions as important as the power over war. But the only clear answers are to the least important questions. Otherwise, as Corwin long ago observed, and as Secretary Christopher has noted, the Constitution is an invitation to a struggle. With powers not only separated into the three types of functions, but mixed in order to prevent the tyranny of control by a single branch. Legislative powers given to the executive, executive powers given to the legislature, judicial authority over all. Efforts to change this system of overlapping powers tend to decrease, I would submit, rather than increase responsibility and security. So I will try very briefly to sum up the basic high points of the system that leads to these complexities and leave lots of time for uh, discussion. The complexities begin with a point that Secretary Christopher touched on, and that is that while Congress has the power to declare war, war need not be declared. Congress can authorize an undeclared war, and the Supreme Court has held unanimously that it can do so by legislation. Since then, 1800, Congress has authorized military action by legislation many more times than it has declared war. Some, nonetheless, continue to argue that undeclared wars are illegal. Your interest in them should have waned long ago. Since Congress can authorize war by legislation, a key question that then arises is what constitutes authorization? Well, often Congress is very explicit about authorization, and the wars that we are now experiencing were clearly and expressly authorized. But authorization can take a variety of other forms, among the most common of which is for Congress to provide weapons, manpower, or money for a particular purpose. Sometimes the purpose is not even stated because it is clear from context, including legislative history. And that's been true since Congress in 1797 provided frigates to 
President Adams, and everyone knew what they were for, to protect American commerce in the Mediterranean. So a system that allows legislative approval for uses of force to be implied from various forms of legislative action gave presidents considerable scope in being able to claim they were acting with legislative authority. And they were usually right. Congress, generally speaking, has been behind the president in allowing the president to exercise authority in a freewheeling manner throughout most of American history. Now, in addition to that, and generating even more complexity and richness for our system and frustration for those who want clear rules, the president is authorized to defend America, is sworn to defend America. Now, this means that he exercises, or she, the power under international law to exercise self-defense and all the powers relevant to the leadership of a country. That is another source of great power to the presidency with regard to the discretion to claim the authority to exercise force. The Vietnam War was a turning point, and Congress adopted the War Powers Resolution in an effort to narrow these uncertainties. But I fear that while the War Powers Resolution makes excellent sense with regard to the requirements of notice, the special voting procedures, etc., it makes no sense at all and actually encourages a lack of responsibility in both the Congress and the President with regard to its other provisions. We should ask, we should ask ourselves, why did Congress adopt the War Powers Resolution? Certainly, when it said in the War Powers Resolution, we, you can claim to have authority under the War Powers Resolution to act only if we expressly give you that authority in the legislation, what they seem to be saying is, we will never allow you, Mr. President, to, or Madam President, to act, to act, unless we've expressly told you you can act. But that's not what the War Powers Resolution does. Actually, it allows Congress, and after the initial Congress that passed the War Powers Resolution, every Congress has done this, to authorize the president to act without invoking the War Powers Resolution, to give the president the money to do the things the president wants to do, very consciously knowing that the president is going to do that and not, and not mention the War Powers Resolution at all. Now, this process is somewhat embarrassing for the Congress. If you stop to think about what it means in the real world, I, some of you have probably heard my analogy to a certain mafia family that would appreciate having the benefit of the War Powers Resolution. The leader, we could call him hopeful manipulatore, would have a family rule that defines approval of an action only when a family order 
specifically states that it was intended to constitute authority under the family rules. So when one of his dons asks for guns and a resolution of support of, say, operation all in the family, as opposed to the other family, the don, the, the family leader, provides the funds and a resolution of support, but refuses to write in that order that the action was intended to satisfy the requirements of the family rules. And therefore, the action has not been approved by the family. The Don could even come back, as the president did in Kosovo, and say he needed more money to get the job done because the other family has launched an insurgent war. You can have the money, says the family leader, but just to support the troops. We're not authorizing anything under the family rules. The manipulatore family wins the war. The Don goes to jail, right? Because he wasn't authorized to act. But the family leader is OK. Congress has not authorized the war at all. Well, it's preposterous. It would be preposterous in any area of legal life in America. But that's the, that is the rule under which the Congress purports to operate. Now, on the other hand, the War Powers Resolution did nothing to constrain those very vague executive powers that I mentioned to you that have grown up historically in the War Powers Resolution so long as the president exercised them within 60 days. And so when Clinton went to the Congress after starting the bombing of Kosovo, he said, 60 days is not up. It's fine. I haven't violated anything. And that's led, I would submit, to a general sense that presidents can regard Congress as ineffectual, if not downright irresponsible. And what they've done in the last six years with the arguments that they've trooped out for unilateral executive authority is a true mark of the extent to which irresponsibility can be carried in the executive branch uh, to match any degree of irresponsibility in the legislature. The one example that struck me, and I'm going to sit down after this, uh, is in the torture convention area. I had the privilege of presenting the torture convention as legal advisor to the Department of State. And I was astonished to learn that if Congress, when it passed a law implementing the Treaty of the United States, duly adopted by the Senate, attempted in that law, which made criminal every violation of the torture convention, if it intended to regulate the president's conduct in a time of national security crisis, then that law was by that fact alone unconstitutional. An absolutely amazing assertion that I would submit in part stems from the very unhealthy structural set of rules that we now operate under with regard to the power of war. Thank you.
Thank you, Abe, very much. Is this microphone working all right? Are you hearing me in the back of the room? You know, I confess to being a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. Uh, when I uh, <laughs> came to Los Angeles, there was a wonderful center fielder named Duke Snyder. Oh, yeah. And toward the end of his great career, uh, when his knees were in bad shape, uh, Duke was re relegated to the role of a pinch hitter. And after he'd done that for a year or so, he said, you know, damn it, pinch hitting is the hardest role in baseball. Well, I, I mentioned that story because I'm very grateful to Jack Rokoff for being here today. He's, he's just not at the end of his career, and his knees are in good shape. <laughs> But we're delighted to have Jack come and be with us today. He's a great American historian, as you know, Professor Stanford here and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he earned his uh, A.B. at Haverford and his Ph.D. from Harvard. Uh, he has been here at Stanford since uh, 1980 and uh, teaches uh, in, in rights and history. He won his Pulitzer Prize for, for a great book called The Original Meanings, Politics and Ideas in the Making of the Constitution. Uh, I think he's very, very well equipped to join this panel today and perhaps give us all a real sense of constitutional history as well as other views that he might have on this pressing problem of the day. Jack, we're delighted to have you here. Thanks very much, Chris. I, I'm more than happy to pinch hit. My, my own baseball analogy would be, since I'm a lifelong and a very proud Cubs fan, uh, a, 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 a trade a I share somewhat with Larry, but Larry is much more deep, Kramer, our dean, but Larry's much more deeply conflicted about this than I am. I mean, my, my loyalty is unmitigated, and his is quite mitigated. Uh, so I, actually, I was, I was thinking about the baseball analogy. I, my, my favorite player growing up as a kid on the, on the west side of Chicago was a guy named Eddie Mixis. If 10% if of the audience recognizes his name, I'd be amazed. But he was, uh, he actually came to the Cubbies from the Dodgers in, in, a, in one of the many famous trades where the Dodgers would dump has been players on the Cubs. But Mix, <laughs> but Mixus was the great utility player in, uh, in the National League in the 50s. He played every position, uh, but, uh, every, every position but pitched. Uh, and actually, in some ways, as a historian, since, since I, I, I dabble in legal issues, I'm essentially a historian in the 18th century, but a lot of my writing affects contemporary constitutional controversies, and so I've tried to move back and forth between two centuries and more of American history. Uh, I like to think there's a bit of the mixes in my, in my scholarship, though I hope my batting average is higher than his. So, um, If you want to think about the issues that, uh, that uh, Secretary Christopher and, and Judge Sophia have already put before us, uh, from my perspective, which is essentially an 18th century historian who spends most of his waking hours in the 18th century, uh, and who, who treats originalism regardless of how you think about it, as a theory of uh, constitutional jurisprudence as a serious exercise that historians ought to be paying more attention to. If you try to think about these contemporary issues from the deep background of the 18th century, uh, it seems to me there are, in fact, all kinds of helpful findings and, and in some ways, ver some very strong conclusions uh, that one can draw from the kinds of materials uh, to which historians like myself would, would want to look to make sense of how the various provisions that define the national security structure of the Constitution made their way into the text. And what I want to use my seven to 10 minutes of serious time here to discuss is, is just to lay out three basic perspectives 
uh, for thinking about the allocation of war powers, uh, in particular national security powers more generally, uh, in the text of the Constitution. I happen to think they're directly salient to our contemporary discussions. I happen to think the, the recent very depressing events in which the nation has been immersed uh, actually go a long way towards illustrating the underlying wisdom, uh, and, uh, but also some, perhaps some of the defects uh, of the constitutional system. I think there are strong inferences, if not very powerful conclusions to be drawn. Uh, and so I think if we spend just uh, you know, seven to 10 minutes in the 18th century, uh, we'll all come away better informed and with a better grasp uh, of how to think about these issues. Uh, and so the three perspectives I basically want to identify, the first is to just know something about the British background, uh, the practice of the British Constitution, particularly in the period from the Glorious Revolution of 1689 down to the, uh, the eve of American independence in 1776. Second, to know something about the great constitutional debates uh, of the decade of independence from the adoption of the Declaration of Independence in 76 to the uh, framing of the federal constitution in 1787. And then third, to look just very quickly at some of the early precedents uh, that were set, especially in the first decade, uh, excuse me, in the last decade of the 18th century, the first decade uh, of governance on, uh, under the constitution. Because in many ways, as, and, and Abe and I have had the chance to discuss this in other kinds of fora, some of the classic arguments that we're still hashing back and forth uh, or see, some of the basic arguments were still hashing back and forth. He had their kind of locus classicus in, in, in their classical point of origin uh, in a famous debate between Madison and Hamilton in 1793. I'm not going to talk about that debate, but I will try to situate, get us to think about why the 1790s shed some interesting light on, on our current situation. So first, the British, the, the British background. What is it we need to know? Uh, I think there are two fundamental sets of facts we need to know uh, about the way in which br uh, British pra theory and, pra and practice uh, provided a kind of intellectual, conceptual, political background for the, for the constitutional debates uh, of our own uh, constitutional founders and framers. Uh, the first is that under the British Constitution, it is the accepted doctrine that the, that the decision to go to war and the decision to make treaties, meaning of course also the decision to end wars, uh, were part of the royal prerogative. That's to say they are thought of as being part of the inherent uh, executive powers, the executive powers of the crown. Uh, and uh, those who follow John Yu and his scholarship or follow Yu-like arguments uh, should recognize that a significant part of John Yu's arguments uh, pivot around the idea that the framer's definition of executive power uh, was somehow consistent with and in many ways directly derived from that 18th century British background of thinking about prerogative. Uh, the, problem, the problem with that or the, 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 the mitigating, mitigating practice that has to be put in mind here uh, that, that we, the historian would want to recall is that in at least two significant ways, or I think probably more, but in at least two significant ways, those broad theoretical powers uh, of, of the crown over war and diplomacy, war and peace, had already been sharply circumscribed by two practices that had evolved in British parliamentary uh, history uh, in the decades following the Glorious Revolution when uh, James II was deposed and William and Mary come to the throne. Uh, and those are the two principles uh, that are known as annual supplies on the one hand, that's a fairly familiar doctrine, and the Mutiny Act on the other, which is more obscure but should be of greater interest to this audience uh, meeting under the law school's auspices. So annual supply says that, every, that uh, even though Parliament only has to meet once every three years, Parliament adopts the, uh, the practice of voting military supplies on an annual basis, meaning Parliament has to meet every year or else there's no funding for the army. This is joined to the idea that before 1689, the king, if he wished to commit troops uh, to some overseas adventure, could do so with his own funds. After 1689, it's understood as part of English law, that the king no longer had that option, that, 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 that when Britain's forces were to be committed, they, the, the support for or the supplies for them had to come uh, you know, through a vote of parliament. 
So one thing the parliament does, A, to, uh, to regulate uh, the king's capacity to make war, uh, and B, to assure its own continual capacity to meet, not every three years, but every year, is the principle of annual supplies. It's a great parliamentary weapon. It's what Madison would call one of those infinitude of legislative expedients that parliamentary bodies could always use to uh, advance, uh, advance their, own, their own power. The second thing the parliament does, which I think for lawyers should be more interesting, and I think is directly opposite of where we are now in terms of all the debates about, all the debates about Guantanamo and the Military Commission Act and habeas corpus and whether or not it applies uh, to enemy combatants of a certain you know, suspect character. Parliament also begins to adopt in 1969 a, a series of uh, acts called the Mutiny Act. These two are enacted on an annual basis. The first one is actually designed just to put down a mutiny. But very quickly, the statute evolves into a kind of general purpose uh, means of regulating military affairs broadly defined. Uh, it's under the Mutiny Act, for example, that the Crown gets the authority to promulgate articles of war, meaning the authority to impose military discipline. Uh, on, you know, to have any kind of martial law. I mean, not just martial law imposed on occupied territory, but martial law is, really, is what we call military, military justice. It also becomes a kind of general use statute, so all kinds of aspects of the administration of the army derive their legal authority from annual parliamentary enactments. Anybody who thinks about these two hedging devices for a minute, uh, even 30 seconds, uh, probably more time than Vice President Cheney is devoted to the subject, uh, you know, will we'll immediately recognize that whatever the, whatever the broad theory of prerogative says, or even David Addington, whatever the broad theory of prerogative says, these are two very powerful devices uh, to assert that the legislature has a continuous, ongoing, quite substantial role in terms of regulating the conduct of military affairs. That's the British background. Uh, the constitutional debates of 1776, especially those of 1787, have been very well worked over by scholars uh, for a generation and more now. And if we went back to the enactment of the War Powers Resolution slash Act of uh, 1973, I was about to say 1793, but 1973, uh, the War Powers Resolution of, of 1973, I mean, there are a number of scholars uh, have, have gone repeatedly over uh, those, uh, over those debates. The critical debate, the one that everybody has to reference, that you can't tell the basic story without it, uh, is the famous, now famous debate of August 17th, uh, 1787. And at this point, to set the stage very briefly, um, throughout most of the convention, the convention's been meeting since late May 1787, throughout most of that period, the basic assumption had been that the power to make war and the power, to, power of diplomacy would vest in the Senate not in the executive, which remains a very under-conceptualized and uh, very controversial institution, but in the Senate. And that's the way it comes, the Constitution, the working draft comes out of the, the Committee of Detail on August 6, 1787. And then when that clause, is, when, when the relevant clauses start to be taken up, there's a movement, or there's a sharp reaction for a variety of reasons against the idea of concentrating that power in the Senate. And the critical uh, debate takes place on August 17th, and, 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 and I'm sure this formula will be familiar uh, to, to, uh, to many of you. Uh, James Madison and Elbridge Gerry, a rather unlikely alliance politically, introduce a motion that says the power of Congress to make war uh, should be changed to the power of Congress to declare war. Uh, and the basic gloss being given on this is that, well, there are two uh, comments that are, further comments that are always repeated in this, uh, 
uh, in this context. One is leaving to the president the power to repel sudden attacks, meaning, and I'm, Abe, Abe kind of alluded to this already, there, there, there are many ways a nation can be at war. Uh, it would be crazy to say the president, if the nation is attacked, let's say Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, it would be crazy. Yeah, it would make no sense at all to say the president has to wait for Congress to come back to town. Let's say Congress is adjourned, as it was most of the time in the 18th and the 19th century. They spend much more time at home than they do at the Capitol. It would be crazy to say the Congress has to come back to session, come back in a session before the president can authorize the as commander in chief can authorize the armed forces uh, to fire back. I mean that's absolutely nutty. I mean nobody would want to live in our constitution uh, like that. So you know if you're attacked, you are at war. And of course the president should direct uh, the you know the uh, um, the you know, his his subordinates, the armed forces, to you know, to, to repel us on an attack. Uh, second basic comment is Rufus King's uh, famous remark to kind of win over one of the Connecticut delegates, Oliver Al Ellsworth, author of the Judiciary Act of 1789, uh, who had been a skeptic about whether or not uh, uh, the president should be involved at all, uh, or whether or not the language should be changed. Uh, King says the power to make war might be confused with the power to conduct war, meaning to, ma to direct it actively, uh, which is an executive function. So. That's the, that's the basic, you know, that's, that's, far, that's far and away the most important d d d uh, debate that takes place. What is it we're, what is it we're supposed to uh, glean from this? Well, a couple things. Uh, you know, we, could, we could read, this would be the John Newright reading, that declare is a narrow, uh, is a very narrow notion. That's, you know, when, you, when you're really going to war, you know, think about uh, duck soup when... Fredonia declares war on Klopstakia, or you know, whatever it is, and everybody comes marching in. If it's really war in the beat the chest, fully mobilized way, that's one set of situations. There may be any of a number of other situations where, in fact, you want to say the president's authority is commander-in-chief, uh, you know, should, should be enough. The problem with that argument is when we read the, it seems to me, when we read the war clause in, its, uh, in Article 1, Section 8, in its totality, we also notice that the power of Congress extends not only the power to declare war, but the power to issue letters of mark and reprisal, which means authorizing ships to go out as privateers, more or less. If you think about that in the realm of analogy, and since you guys are lawyers, I know you're used to thinking by analogy, which historians actually do very rarely. Uh, but if you think about it, you know, issue, issues of mark and reprisal is the closest we have in the original text of the Constitution to what we, might, might now, we now call low-intensity conflict. It's, it's kind of the least militant form of war available. The idea that that power is placed in Congress and not given to the president. If the president abused it, you could always impeach him. The idea that that power, you know, the least possible, uh, the, you know, the, the, the least dangerous, or you know, I won't say least provocative, but you know, the lowest level of constitutionally recognized conflict is a power of Congress and not given to the president, seems to me to indicate quite strongly uh, that the framers had a very robust uh, notion of why congressional assent was necessary uh, in any situation where there's enough time for Congress to deliberate and decide whether or not war is in the national interest. I could say a lot more on this, but we're trying to keep this short. That's as much as I'll say for now about 1787. Let me just say something very quickly about the 1790s. Uh, what, what did the 1790s reveal? Uh, and I, I'm sure your history for this period is a little rusty, and I'm not going you know, to push your knowledge, much less give, give you a quiz on it. But it is a period of intense international conflict because of the wars, the, the wars of the French Revolution, uh, in which the United States inevitably gets, uh, has interests, if only, if only as a neutral power, 
uh, and so on. And it leads to fundamental divisions within the national elite and soon within the larger population uh, over, over what, what the foreign policy of the United States should be. Uh, and I think these, these disputes, more than other kinds of issues, are what really lead to the creation of our, of, of our first political parties. And what the experience of trying to make and execute foreign policy under, under the Constitution demonstrates is that in practice, on the ground, most of the time, under most foreseeable circumstances, all the real advantages in decision making accrue to the executive for lots of obvious reasons. Whether you, know, whether you subscribe to the theory of the unitary executive and it's kind of full-blown modern conception, but the fact is the executive power is vested in a, single in a single person, the President of the United States. He is at the head of a branch. He can be decisive and he can be expeditious and he can do things with en energy and dispatch, to use their language, which is literally impossible, uh, or, or if not literally impossible, quite difficult for Congress to pull off. Uh, and so one of the problems that my alter egos, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, find themselves dealing with is the leading critics of the Federalist foreign policy of the 1790s is they keep trying to find ways to get Congress to do its duty or to kind of stick up to try to circumscribe uh, unilateral foreign policy making, which they don't approve on it for a variety of reasons, and generally they fail. Generally they fail. Uh, and so one of the great lessons of the American Constitution, if you're a political realist, as we all like to think we are, uh, is we do have to take seriously all the kinds of advantages uh, that accrue to the presidency because of, because of it, the very different uh, structure of the institutions, uh, and which this administration, I think to its regret, has tried to push to the maximum degree possible. Yet, and this is my last point, but yet, even if the 1790s are instructive in terms of getting us to appreciate how much real advantage the executive branch has, uh, on these occasions or in, in, in this realm of policymaking, there's one really interesting example, which a really interesting precedent or whatever, which I knew nothing about until I had a, a student of mine uh, doing a, who wants to go to law school next year doing a senior thesis uh, under my direction uh, last year, um, a graduate senior named Paco Torres, who came, I think, I think this fact has been known to others, but not much is made of it. In 1798, when we're in a naval war against, uh, the so-called quasi-war against France, which is the outgrowth of all, the, all these disputes. Congress enacts the statute authorizing President John Adams to provide naval protection for convoys of merchantmen, of merchant shipping, while they're in territorial waters. While they're in territorial waters. But not when they're on the high seas. Now, one would think if the President's powers commander-in-chief trumps every other part of Article I, Section 8 in terms of delegating national security powers to uh, to, to Congress, one would think that legislation would be, or that kind of restriction, would be either superfluous or pointless or you know, constitutionally problematic. That's not what people thought at the time. Adams seemed to think it was good law. Interestingly enough, Alexander Hamilton has the chance to, is given the chance to review it, and he looks it over and he says he thinks this is good law. And Hamilton is our strongest proponent historically, you know, our proto-John Yu for thinking about the inherent, you know, the, 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 the inherent powers uh, of the executive. So I think if we look at the 1790s, we also find a set of constraints. So putting these three things together, you know, the British background properly understood, the constitutional debates of the late 1780s, uh, and even the early presidents of the 1790s, it seems to me, it, as, as a historian, it's impossible to tell a story with any degree of plausibility, much less persuasiveness, which would come down on the side of the theories that we've heard from the current administration uh, since 2001. Actually, we've heard, this, heard them from Vice President Cheney uh, for a much longer period than that. Uh, but again, the presidency has real advantages, and that's what 
we have to take into account. So I'm happy to pinch it and glad to be part of this event. Thank you. Jack, thank you very much. I can't resist telling you a gossipy little fact about Jack. Uh, Jack was the advisor to uh, Chelsea Clinton was here and helped her with her thesis when he was. What do you remember the topic of that, Jack? Uh, it was about the, the Good Friday Accords and you know, uh, bringing the uh, you know the well. I was going to say bring the strife in Northern Ireland to an end. That would be a little bit overly optimistic, but making substantial progress towards it. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. Well, our, our next and, and final speaker is Alan Weiner, who is a professor at Stanford Law School. Uh, many of you in the audience may remember Alan. He was in the law school, graduated in 1989, order of Coif, an article editor of the Law Review. Uh, you have his bio in front of you. You can see that he was, he's been a real international law lawyer for 10 years. There's a gossipy fact I want to tell you about Alan, too. He is the international law advisor to the actress Angelique Jolie. <laughs> well, that tops me. I want to introduce Alan to you, but ask him to tell you about something else, Alan. <laughs> I have something of a reputation uh, of sometimes having stories that wander on too long, and the only exception is when I start to tell the Angelina Jolie stories. I usually find people pay attention all the way through. Now, I have a confession to make today, which is that I am not a constitutional law scholar. And you're thinking to yourself, well, who else couldn't attend the panel today? Um, and or to continue the baseball analogy, as a constitutional law scholar, you might say uh, that I fall probably 10 or 15 points below the Mendoza line. Um, but I'm here to talk about some international law issues which I think have very sub significant implications for our consideration of these questions. Now, these debates about the allocation of powers between the Congress and the President with respect to war making have raged for many decades, but I think that 9-11 uh, obviously gave a new dimension and a new urgency to them. Now, September 11th was, of course, not the first time that the United States was victimized by terrorist attacks, but as we all know, the magnitude of the events of September 11th fundamentally changed the nature of the United States government's response to international terrorism. The Bush administration decided to go well beyond what had been the traditional American response, that is to say a combination of diplomatic coordination, economic sanctions, law enforcement cooperation, uh, and instead the president decided that uh, the United States was engaged in a war on terrorism. Now, this invocation of war powers uh, obviously has significant implications in terms of the kinds of questions that we are examining today about the role of the president, the role of the Congress, and perhaps even the role of the courts in determining when to start, how to conduct, and when to end wars. Now, before we get into these questions about the jurisdictional division within our executive branch, I think there's an important threshold issue to consider, and this is what I'd like to discuss with you a little bit today. And that is whether or not we are really dealing with something that might properly be called war. Is the war against non-state actors, terrorist groups, in fact, armed conflict, as we call it in international law, or war? What kinds of political violence uh, amount to warfare and justify the invocation of the fairly extraordinary legal authorities that are available to governments in a state of war that are not available in peacetime? For me, 
this threshold question has important implications for some of the intramural or jurisdictional questions that we've been discussing earlier this afternoon. Now, in some sense, this might not seem like a very interesting question, or at least not a very novel one. It's old hat for American political leaders to invoke the concept of war as a rhetorical device to attempt to inspire a concerted national response to the challenges of the day. In the early 1970s, for instance, uh, President Nixon launched a national war on crime. Uh, nearly 20 years later, President Reagan initiated a war on drugs. When I te teach my students, uh, I have to remind them that in the time of President Johnson, uh, there was once something known as the war on poverty. Um, and then there was, uh, during the uh, Carter administration, the moral equivalent of war in response to the energy crisis, which had the unfortunate acronym of MEOW. Um, <laughs> and we wonder why the guy didn't get a second term. <laughs> But in these, past instances, in these past instances, the concept of war was invoked as a metaphor. Uh, the Johnson, Nixon, and Reagan administrations uh, were not really claiming to be able to use the powers that are available in wartime against criminals or drug dealers or people who are responsible for poverty. Um, the Bush administration's characterization of the conflict against terrorism stands in sharp contrast. With respect to the war on terrorism, the United States claims that this is a real war, or war in a legal sense. President Bush said in a radio address that, make no mistake about it, the war on terrorism is not a figure of speech. Right? And the President's actions have, in fact, borne out the view that the United States is claiming war powers in response to the struggle against terrorism. I'm going to touch very briefly on these. Uh, if anybody has questions about them in the discussion session, we can do more. But let me just touch very briefly on some ways in which the United States has, in fact, used authorities in the response to terrorism that are available only in wartime. First, of course, in response to 9-11, the United States engaged in a major international armed operation in Afghanistan in which U.S. forces on the ground engaged in armed combat and exercised what is known as the combatant's privilege. Right? We were allowed to kill enemy soldiers without any judicial process. This is essentially what war reflects. It's a license to kill, uh, to destroy enemy property. Secondly, the United States has exercised the right to kill persons outside of Afghanistan, outside the battlefield of Afghanistan. This happened in Yemen in 2002 when a Predator missile struck a vehicle carrying five uh, al-Qaeda operatives. And more recently, earlier this year in Somalia, the United States has launched strikes against individuals who are said to be associated with Al-Qaeda, and the administration has explained that these killings did not violate the prohibition under U.S. law, at least under U.S. executive order, on assassination because the operatives had been defined as enemy combatants and were thus legitimate targets for lethal force. We have, of course, famously asserted the wartime right to detain enemy combatants not because they've committed a crime, having been tried by a, uh, by a judicial process, but simply as a prophylactic measure to remove them from the battlefield. Most famous, of course, are the detainees at Guantanamo. There are still over 350 there, now uh, some six years after the conflict in Afghanistan began. But we've also detained persons as enemy combatants, Americans, here on U.S. soil. As a domestic law matter as well, the United States has invoked commander-in-chief powers that would uh, give him the, act, the capacity to engage in conduct which in peacetime would at least arguably not be permissible. Uh, Judge Sofia referred to the famous 2002 memo in which the Office of the Legal Counsel asserted that it would be unconstitutional for the Congress to prohibit the President's capacity to engage in interrogations that he deemed necessary uh, in 
furtherance of his prosecution of the war on terror, notwithstanding, again, the enactment of the implementing legislation for the torture convention. And the executive branch has also relied in part on presidential powers available only in wartime, commander-in-chief powers, to justify its electronic surveillance program conducted by the National Security Agency. So whether the executive branch is justified in exercising these kinds of wartime authorities, it seems to me, then depends or turns on whether the conflict against terrorism is, in fact, war. Uh, and I should stress, these are not mere slogans. The phrase war, the phrase armed conflict, this is not merely a slogan. These are legal concepts which arise under international law that have defined legal meanings. And so I've been asking myself for some time now whether the war on terror is really war. Uh, some, uh, I and some others who write in this area have questioned at least the categorical invocation of war powers. In a couple of papers, I have argued that as a technical matter, the war against terrorism can't constitute war in the traditional sense, because war in the classic sense is a relationship between countries, right, between states. And so conflict between the United States and non-state actors can, in technical terms, amount to war. At the same time, I've taken sort of a centrist position and have argued that there are at least some circumstances or some actors in the war on terrorism against whom, for functional grounds, it would be appropriate to extend the war regime. Groups that have organization and capacity that make them party-like in the sense of being almost like a state, that are acting on the international stage, et cetera. And there's a beautiful, detailed, wonderful, moving analysis uh, that I've developed which kind of lays uh, this all out. <laughs> which the Supreme Court in the Hamdan case last year basically categorically described as wrong. Um, <laughs> which is why I can kind of poetically refer to its, its beauty because no one will ever look at it again, right? It's relegated to the dustbin of history. Now, in the Hamdan case, the Supreme Court took a different view and decided that actually some provisions of the laws of war literally apply to the conflict, at least in which Mr. Hamdan, uh, the uh, individual whose case was at issue there, who was detained in the armed conflict in Afghanistan, at least some part of the laws of war applied to the conflict that the United States was engaged in in which Mr. Hamdan was participating. It relied on Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, which provides certain minimal protections uh, in cases of armed conflict not of an international character occurring in the territory of one of the parties to the Geneva Conventions. Now, I think that traditionally it's fair to say most international lawyers understood this provision, Common Article 3, regarding conflict not of an international character was really only limited to civil wars. That is to say, internal conflicts that took place within a single country. And the Hamdan, took court, the Hamdan court took a different view and essentially said that uh, these law of war provisions applied to war that was not international. That is to say, not inter between nations, state. And so because the conflict between the United States and Al-Qaeda was not inter between two nations, the court concluded that Common Article 3 applied. Now, I have to say that for me, uh, Hamdan was a bit of a tragedy. Our Supreme Court took an international legal rule very seriously, which it is sometimes accused of not doing. And in some ways, it reached a result that I happened to like, which was to invalidate certain provisions of the military commission's regime that had been established for the detainees at Guantanamo. But I think that Congress actually got the law substantively wrong. I'm sorry, the court substantively got the law wrong here. But the much more powerful consideration, I think, is the implication of the court's decision. Common Article 3 extends only a very minimal set of protections 
to participants in armed conflict. It doesn't include all of the detailed protections that are laid out in the Geneva Conventions. And for persons who are now found to be subject to the laws of war, what's the price to be paid? Well, I think the implication of the court's decision is that, in fact, they are proper subjects of the war power asserted by the president. That is to say, the combatant's privilege, the capacity to detain indefinitely for the duration of the conflict, I think arguably, arguably, depending on how Hamdan is construed and applied, may validate the president's claim of broad capacity to engage in war powers with respect to the conflict against terrorism. Now, I just said that the, this will depend a little bit on how Hamdan is construed and applied. And a significant question, perhaps the central challenge that we face, is to decide who will do the construing. Again, because the uh, existence of a state of war imposes or extends very extensive powers, uh, places very extensive powers in the hands of the executive branch, uh, I, of course, am one of those, like many of you, who are concerned about the danger that the executive branch, whether because of error, because of a risk aversion and a desire to err on the side of safety, uh, or the danger of abuse, will consolidate too much power in the hands of the executive branch. And so what is to be done about this? What is to be done about the scope of application of this war power? I think that this ultimately now becomes the most important question. More important than the question of who can start a war and who can end a war is to decide what is the scope of the application of the war power in the context of this non-traditional conflict. To whom may war powers be extended? who is susceptible to the exercise of authority by the executive branch. Now, the Hamdan court took a first step in this regard uh, by determining that, again, part of the legal regime that applies in wartime uh, applies, again, to at least some of the conflict against terrorism. Now, having opened that Pandora's box, it's my view that the judiciary must go further and should help determine the legal limits of the application of the war regime. Hamdan, I should stress, provides very little guidance on this question. Although the court said that common Article III applied to Hamdan himself, it's not clear what the court thought the relevant conflict was. Is it the armed conflict that took place between the United States and al-Qaeda forces in Afghanistan? Is it the conflict between the United States and al-Qaeda forces no matter where they are operating? Is it the conflict between the United States and terrorists generally? This is not a theoretical question. It's notable in this regard that at least some of those detained at Guantanamo, for example, uh, are not linked to al-Qaeda or to the Taliban, but are linked to other terrorist organizations. 30% are deemed to be mere members of the organization, and another 60% are merely associated with the terrorist organization. Now, in the traditional war regime, in the traditional armed conflict regime, mere association with an enemy power would not be enough for the government to assert the fairly extraordinary authorities that are available in wartime, such as the right to kill and the right to detain indefinitely. For instance, we may not detain citizens of an enemy country ordinarily in wartime with which we are at war. A proper balancing of security considerations on the one hand and civil liberties and human rights considerations on the other calls for the courts, I believe, to determine uh, not only which group against which we may assert force, but the degree of connection or the degree of nexus to the association that must be met before the extraordinary wartime power uh, may be asserted. Other ambiguities 
associated with the conflict against terrorism, I believe, also require review by the courts of the assertion of jurisdiction or powers by the executive branch. We know that there is no particular geographic limitation uh, to the scope of uh, the, the conflict against terrorism, as might exist in a traditional armed conflict. And we also know that there's a temporal problem. Uh, in traditional armed conflict, wars end when the opposing parties formally agree to stop fighting. This is an outcome which seems unlikely to be achieved in the context of the conflict against terrorism. The case of Boum Dien versus Bush, which is currently pending before the Supreme Court, provides an important initial opportunity for the Supreme Court to assert what I believe is the judiciary's proper role in determining the legal limits of the armed conflict that was recognized in Hamdan. Uh, without doing so, uh, I'm concerned that uh, we will lack any kind of third-party accountability mechanism to uh, provide, again, an appropriate balance between security and liberty uh, if we just invest authority in the executive branch. And with that, I will conclude so that we have some time for discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and now to the questions. And I ask uh, the questioners to be brief, and I ask the answers to be relatively brief, too. I'm going to start off with a brief question for Judge Sofair. Abe, uh, do you think that uh, President Bush at the present time, I bet this is a question that's on the mind of many of you, do you think that President Bush at the present time has the authority to invade Iran? No. Iran. 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 Yeah. The, the uh, president would have the power to defend America from an attack. Uh, there's no such attack underway. Uh, uh, the, uh, ironically, uh, there are legislative uh, provisions that call for uh, regime change in Iran uh, and uh, that uh, could provide an argument to the president for uh, some uh, interventionist policies, but frankly, I, I personally do not believe that a major military action uh, can be initiated by the president without legislative consultation and some form of approval. Let me ask just one other brief question of our panels. Some of us are old enough to have lived through World War II, as I was, and I think we all look back with regret on the internment of the Japanese at that time as an exercise of unconstitutional power. 50 years from now, will we look back at this period and uh, ask ourselves whether or not uh, we infringed on the constitutional rights and freedoms of Americans, especially Arab Americans, uh, during this period in the, in the war on terror? Uh, either you, Jack, from a historian standpoint, or, or you, Alan, want to take a cut at that question briefly? Well, one thing that I think is important to understand is the, the, the way decisions function bureaucratically within a government, right? And within the executive branch, when we think about Arab Americans, when we think about the detainees at Guantanamo, uh, no one wants to be the one who is responsible for not having apprehended somebody, for having failed to prevent a crime from occurring, or for releasing someone from Guantanamo, for instance, who might later show up on the battlefield. So there is a, uh, just an inherent uh, sort of institutional design that causes the executive branch to err 
in the favor of an excess of caution, overreaching uh, in the trade-off between civil liberties and securities. That's actually not a bad thing, provided that uh, it is balanced with the kinds of checks and balances that we're traditionally accustomed to in our system. I think we will regret, uh, as we have regretted the overreaction in many emergencies in the history of this country, uh, and that's why I think we need to think very seriously about expanding oversight, whether it's from the Congress or from the courts, to provide a mechanism which ensures that unfettered executive discretion does not earn the direction of excess security concerns. Jack? Well, the last thing any historian wants to do about anything is, is to predict what will happen tomorrow, <laughs> uh, you know, much, you know, much less how people will think in half a century. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of thinking historically, is to think about how much changes. But I, I'll, so I'll, I'll offer a somewhat non-responsive, but I hope useful answer to your question, which is that I, I think the Japanese-American cases uh, do have, uh, what is this? Do, uh, are my course, they're flunking. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, well, anyhow, um, <laughs> as I was about to say on a more serious note, I mean, it does seem to me that the Japanese-American cases, I think, operate as a kind of, you know, I'd be interested to know what Abe thinks about this, but I think they've become, in, this, in the sense of a norm of judicial behavior, that they, I, I think it would be hard to be on the federal judiciary today, and to have any of the kind of Guantanamo or terror, war and terror related issues come before you, without having that as a kind of benchmark, uh, to think about how, in fact, you will be judged. And you know, it's, it's clear the court at the time was deeply troubled. I mean, the, the 1940s court, the Kiribati court, the so on, the you know, the, very, the various cases were deeply troubled by what they were doing. The dissents are quite interesting. Of course, there's always an advantage in writing dissents over writing the majority opinion. But I think one of the things I'm hopeful about is that having that as a historical reference point for, the, for our contemporary judiciary uh, is, uh, you know, we'll have a kind of, we'll, we'll in a kind of subtle, indirect, non-doctrinal way uh, be a kind of mitigating factor. Thank you, Jack. That was a wonderful answer. Now a question from the audience, and I think I see some microphones out there, do I? People are coming down to the microphones. You first on this left side, right side. Does the president at present have authority to engage in what Gorbachev calls perpetual war by simply leaving troops in Iraq, uh, leaving a couple of divisions in Kurdistan, is there anything inhibiting him from doing that? Can, can we just stay there without, without uh, any kind of further action? Well, there's a resolution uh, that Congress adopted, uh, 60, over 60% of legislators in both houses, that says that the president can, um, can, can fight a war in Iraq, not just 
to enforce the Security Council resolutions, but until such time as he thinks uh, the interests of the security of the United States requires. And uh, so long as Congress continues to pay for that war, it's uh, clearly authorized. And it's very interesting that Senator Byrd, when the Iraq resolution came before Congress, had a sunset clause in it, limiting it to one or possibly two years, and Congress turned that down. I hope Congress might learn from that in the future about putting sunset clauses in these resolutions, which are so broad. <laughs> Next question. Uh, I happen to have been around during World War II, and I, it was a sort of a laugh for me when I left Washington a few days ago. The Washington Post uh, had a front page headline, Woman and Child Killed in Iraq. And I kept thinking about the bombing of Britain and our leveling of German cities and how silly we become. My question, though, is this. Uh, we know that uh, Saddam Hussein uh, had intentions uh, for a caliphate. He, uh, we know that he killed uh, 300,000 people. We know he invaded Iraq. Uh, we went and, and saved that, uh, that situation. We also know that he had intentions to take over Saudi Arabia. Now, I just bring that up to ask this question. Now, if that isn't a threat to the United States, what is? Well, I guess that you put it in the category of a rhetorical question. <laughs> Next question over here. we really need to be concerned about the uh, definition of the word war, which is a concept. And if that's a concept that needs to be further defined. What kind of war? Microphone on. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the word war. You know, I'm very interested in, in the discussion that you proposed there and whether we need to um, really go back to a clear definition of what war is and uh, whether the other panelists uh, would agree. Thank you. Well, generally speaking, people don't use the word war, who, serious lawyers, international lawyers, uh, because there's not supposed to be anything called war anymore in the world after the UN Charter. Uh, there's the use of armed force, uh, conflict. Uh, you either have self-defense or you have a, an armed conflict authorized by the Security Council, or it's illegal what you're doing. So um, the, the concept of war was supposed to uh, disappear. But I don't have as much trouble with uh, the problem of war that, uh, that my colleague Weiner has, because I think Congress, in the resolution relating to Afghanistan, was really much more limited than people understand. Uh, they rejected a, a, a suggestion that um, they authorize a president, uh, uh, similar to what you said, Chris, about uh, in, in Iraq, they, they but the opposite. They rejected a, pr a provision that said that the president <coughs> would have the right to defend America and preempt attacks, prevent attacks on America generally against all terrorists. And they only authorized the use of force with regard to people and groups. They didn't go beyond states. But they had to be involved in the attack of September 11th. And that, that is the scope of the authority under the Afghanistan resolution. That there is war when you're dealing with such people and the reason Supreme Court has repeatedly uh, 
reverse this, the, the, um, the administration in this, in this context is that the people that they have put away indefinitely claim not to be within that category and they didn't give them hearings. So um, that's, really, that's really the source of, I think, of, of a lot of the administration's problems. Let, let me just add two comments on that, if I might, very briefly. Number one, Judge Sofair is absolutely right. The administration sought authorization from Congress to basically uh, deter and preempt any future acts of terrorism or aggression of the United States, which would have been, in fact, a true standing authorization for war, whatever the president decided, and, and, and Congress was much more limited. That said, again, there are at least a dozen of the 355 individuals uh, in Guantanamo who are Uyghur separatists from the, the Turkic minority from China. Now, do they have anything to do with the 9-11 attacks? There are six individuals who were arrested in Bosnia transferred to U.S. custody, right, involved allegedly in plots to engage in bombing of U.S. and British embassies there. Do they have any involvement in the events of 9-11, right? Were the individuals who were struck by an A-10 warship in Somalia linked to 9-11? Uh, we don't know, right? In other words, whatever the Congress may have authorized, it's quite clear that the executive branch is asserting the war power quite broadly. Question over here. Uh, thank you. Brian Levin, JD92, uh, Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism of Cal State. Um, by the way, thank you all for coming. As a New York Mets fan, this is as close as I'm going to get to seeing my favorite All-Stars play in October. Um, my question relates to the following. Um, what impact, if any, should the following considerations about these modern enemies uh, be? That is, the amorphous structure and nature of the different roles of people in these groups their access to weapons of mass destruction in ways that in previous uh, conflicts, lower level uh, actors would not have access to. For instance, you know, the uh, line fighters. And thirdly, the ill-defined time frames to which I speak uh, a defined declaration of war and a defined ending of that war through armistice or something else. What, uh, what impact should those three things play? The, uh, the amorphous structure, the exposure uh, and access to WMD by lower level fighters, and again, these ill-defined time frames. Thank you, gentlemen. The, the one comment I would have to that, and I think it, it really is, is we, it's something we've learned from the last six years particularly, is that uh, it, it, is, it was foolish for a president to attempt to define that in secret, to, uh, to develop answers to that unilaterally and in secret. The, the way the, that pro those kind of issues should be done, uh, dealt with is through the utilization of the, all the talent that's in an administration in every agency, and then a presentation of a proposed set of rules to the Congress for the Congress's debate and acceptance. Question over here. Yeah, my question is a little fall on to your first question about do we have the authority to invade Iran? And the answer from um, Judge, Judge Sofer was um, the president has the authority in to defend the United States. Now, clearly, Iran is not going to um, attack the U.S. physically. So, what is the def the definition of defending the United States? At what point are we threatened? Um, and this is a little bit the gentleman in front of me with a rhetorical question. What is the threat to the United States that would justify such an invasion? Well, you know, Judge Sofair and I have done, we've been on some panels together talking about the question of preemptive and preventive force. 
I think it's quite clear that as a black letter law matter, you're not allowed to use force in self-defense until you've been the victim of an armed attack. But we've moved well beyond the black letter. And I think any US government lawyer and most international lawyers, any responsible one, would agree that states have the right to act in anticipation of an attack against them. The question is how, how far away, how nascent, or how imminent does the threat have to be? And here's where there's been a considerable debate. The, I think the traditional view is that a threat has to be an imminent threat, right? Not a speculative threat, not an incipient threat, not a growing threat, not a gathering gloom, but an actual uh, <laughs> imminent threat. Um, now, the, the gravity of the threat is certainly a consideration that can be factored into account. In other words, if Iran is acquiring weapons of mass destruction, uh, I think many people would agree that it's in, you're justified in taking that into account in determining what imminence means. But I think even as defended by the United States or the Bush administration, the current claim of preemption is substantially different and really uh, is aimed at, at incipient threats which have not yet met the, the traditional international law standard. Abe, do you need a reply, a 10-second reply on that? No, I think that's, that, that's probably where we are, right? My name's Jack. Carford. I'm a member of the greatest class that ever graduated from this august institution. I refer, of course, to the illustrious and most magnificent class of 1952. Of course, <laughs> of course, after I finish this question, they might kick me out of that class, and I might not be a member. But anyway, thinking about the long, the long view of human affairs. 200 years ago, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant said, mankind has one of two destinies. Either we will, learn, we will learn to live in peace and harmony, or we will annihilate each other. We're getting close. Think about the miniaturization and globalization of technology. The Nobel Prize a couple days ago was given to two physics professors for their work in nanotechnology. Think what cell phones can do now. Suitcase bombs. One explodes in Times Square in the middle at noon, in the middle of the week, 500,000 in the initial blast, even though it's maybe a third the size of the Hiroshima bomb. But let me say, in, in honor of all the people behind you, would we come to the question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the question is, shouldn't the question that we are debating here, instead of being who, who has the power to declare war, is who has the power to make and declare peace? Our neighbor two doors up the street makes his living monitoring through GPS rail cars and sealed containers. Over 124 million of those come into our country every day, every year, uninspected. I asked him at a Christmas party, I said, Steve, would it be possible for a bad guy to put an atomic device in one of those sealed containers, track it with GPS, and then detonate it when he wanted to, when it got to where he wanted to? One word answer, sure. His business is to monitor those 
various things, such as temperature and other things in those sealed containers. I think we have to, well, the, the, <laughs> the question is, <laughs> when are we going to realize that conventional forces and macho-ness are not things to do, like unconditional surrender at the end of World War II. I was in the, in the farm forces. That's a, let's put that down as a very fine statement of, of great concern that we all have here over here. I have a question, I promise. Uh, I, I'm uh, unclear how this newly declared immunity, apparently, for the state secrets deprives an individual who's been kidnapped, transported, tortured, and then released from any redress. I, I'm not interested in whether it's right or wrong. When they grab me, if all the administration has to do is say, you can't sue us because it would require us to declare a state secret, then there's no remedy and there's no democracy and we're all just slaves. How does that play into the discussion of war powers if you can't go to the courts to get justice? You understand the question? Abe, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I was stunned by the decision. Um, I think the state secrets doctrine was originally an evidentiary rule, and it relates to, for example, the report of an investigation of an aircraft accident, which is what it stems from, and the, and the, and the, and, um, the government then says, no, you can't have that report. But it, there was never the notion that you cannot bring the suit uh, for negligence uh, or whatever it is that you're bringing or for improper illegal action and rely on other evidence that isn't a state secret to prove that, um, to prove your case. So this is an extraordinary decision. And, um, but once again, you know, um, there's a Congress out there. And um, the state secret doctrine is, is, a, is a product of executive uh, and judicial fiat. And so Congress has to come in and set some standards. Clearly, uh, they've gone over the line. As far as I'm concerned, I agree with you. Abe, uh, that's a very sound answer. I guess the only thing I would point out is I think the court simply declined to hear the case. Right. And the court quite often has good strategic reasons. And I hope someday they will examine the state secret doctrine because it, it has gone way beyond its original intention, I think. Uh, Dean Kramer, or can, are you someplace here? Can we go for 10 minutes more? Or... I think, especially since he's queued up to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about abuse of power. Well, in, in terms of checks and balances, and assuming that the Democrats have a majority in the Congress, if Bush asks for money and they refuse to provide the money, do they have the power to do that first? And second, what would happen? Would that be the end of the war? Well, they certainly, they certainly have the power to appropriate or not appropriate whatever they want. And then, then you get into the question of what happens when the president vetoes whatever appropriation measure does come out and, and, and what the politics of, uh, you know, I mean, how, how that story plays out. I mean, I think there's an abstract constitutional proposition. I mean, just in terms of fundamental constitutional principles, there's nothing particularly ambiguous. And the, the big historic takeaway here is that what's, what's known, known history as the power of the purse was always seen as the leading, you know, of all that infinitude of legislative expedience that a legislature 
could, you know, could, you know, could deploy. That was far and away the most important. But of course, we all know how the language of support, support the troops plays into uh, the politics of, you know, whether it's feasible to go the budgetary route in order to restrict operations. I'm going to exercise a, a kind of a dictatorial power there. Since this is Dean Kramer's building, I'm going to give him the last question. <laughs> okay. Well, I, mean, you're, you're, right. I, I hate to do that, but, but I, as I listen, I, there, I do have, and this question is as much, Chris, for you as, as for Abe mostly, which is what worries me is the following. The question is, how difficult will the issue be to recover in terms of presidential powers? So. Um, if the next president, whoever it is, let's assume it's a Democrat, um, comes into power and discovers that actually a lot of what the Bush administration did, perhaps not the means, but the problems are as they said, wants to go forward, wants to consult Congress even, to what extent though are they gonna find themselves um, crippled or you know, facing this huge problem of, of public doubt? That is to say, to, if, if the Bush administration had consulted all along, we would be in one position, but having failed to consult, is there, you know, the credibility gap in terms of what the real problems are that can't be talked about, right? That can't be revealed, all the information that underlies the assumptions about the scope of the risk. How difficult is it going to be to recover and give the president the powers the president may well need in the next administration, even with consultation? I don't think it's at all going to be difficult. Uh, the, what's happened in the last uh, two years is that um, all those unilateral efforts that the executive attempted, uh, the detention uh, without notice, uh, the, uh, the tor torturing and or, or going across the line, Article 16 of the Torture Convention, um, the, uh, uh, the uh, inconsistent behavior with FISA, uh, there are several areas in which the president's lawyers told him he could unilaterally go beyond Go, go beyond these rules, and the Supreme Court has made clear in three cases, and there are others coming along, that he cannot. And in each, in each area of activity, he has gone now to Congress, and Congress has passed laws uh, that um, authorize him to do uh, pretty much uh, what he wanted to do, uh, and uh, with some limitations, but with a lot of latitude. And uh, the issue is going to be the most, next issue, uh, I agree uh, with Alan, the next issue is going to be whether uh, Congress went too far in, in authorizing the president to, uh, uh, to suspend um, the uh, right of habeas corpus in, in, in that particular context of Blumen-Yen. Uh, Dean Kramer, uh, the reason often given, most recently at least, is that the president can't consult with the, the Congress because of the danger of leaks. These things are just too sensitive to consult. The testimony before our commission is fairly clear that more leaks seem to come from the executive than come from Congress. <laughs> so I, I think uh, really, as Abe has indicated, it's a matter of uh, executive presidential will rather than inability to do so once you wanted to do so. I really thank this wonderful audience I see. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. 
please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.